Welcome to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. I'm your host, Kristen Thomas. I'm a certified sex coach and clinical sexologist based in Kansas City. And I just love to talk to people about what goes on in their sex lives and relationships. I also enjoy good conversation about love, heartache, activism, or making change in the world. Be warned, you should probably be 18 and over and probably listening on your headphones. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I am joined by a friend, activist, artist, and educator, Marik Jensen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I met Marique online, but I am now currently taking a, a, a class, a multi-week series that they're doing called White Women and Accountability. And I mean, Marique, like truth be told, I've heard about you in the community just from being around, just that you have a very unique life. You've had unique experiences. You are the program director for Transformations KC, which is a youth group for trans youth. Uh, you did a lot of organizing here in town, and I was just so very honored to, you know, sit down with you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So do tell me quickly a little bit about transformations. Sure. Tell the audience about transformations, I should say. Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of give you the, the uh, elevator pitch here. So a transformation started in 2016. We are um, a Midwest-based trans and gender expansive youth organization. So we cover the states of Missouri, Kansas, and Northwest Arkansas, so the Ozark region. Um, we have really shifted our work and our programming since COVID. Um, we went virtual with COVID. We used to run drop-in programs and groups. So we saw people were reaching out and being like, do you run the drop-in programs? We don't. We're not doing drop-in programming anymore. But what we are doing is quarterly in-person gatherings focused on topics and programs that trans young people will like. Um, but with our shift, we've been really explicit in uplifting trans young girls of color and trans non-binary kids in survival mode. So our programs and topics will often cater to things that they like to do. Um, but the cool thing is if you are someone who's in the trans community and you're like, I don't really, cause that's the thing too, is we don't really have like a, a general trans community space. We don't have like a trans pride. So um, we kind of become a catch-22 for larger issues as well that people reach out to us for. Um, but if you are looking to connect and find community, our in-person gatherings are open to the larger trans community to join. So even if you're like a 55-year-old trans white person, like you're welcome to come to one of our quarterly gatherings um, to just connect and kind of meet the youth and find you know, just see people like yourself and you probably have some things you can offer to the table. So our next one will be in winter of 2022, as well as kicking off our micro grant program. Mm -hmm. So giving away 250 to $1,000 small grants to the communities that we are centering. Um, and I'm really excited for that. So that's exciting. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, and you can learn more about us at transformationskc.org. Perfect. Perfect. Well, and this, this will be airing, well, we're recording today on Trans Day of Remembrance. Um, this will air like this coming, sorry, my cat just jumped on my printer. Um, but Trans Day of Remembrance, I have definitely talked about on my podcast before. There's, it's, we've got Trans Day of Visibility, which is more about elevating voices and recognizing people in the community that you, know, you may not normally be looking at. But Trans Day of Remembrance is more about like remembering people who have been lost in Kansas city has definitely lost a lot of trans brothers and sisters, especially sisters. 
over the last yeah. couple of years. Yeah, I mean, TDR was traditionally the only time each year that basically cis people got together and were like talking about trans people and it's evolved over time. Unfortunately, I think our Kansas City TDR events have become dominated and run by white trans people and have left the analysis that it's not all trans people who are getting murdered and killed. It's specifically trans women of color, even more specifically black trans women and dark skinned trans women and Latina trans women. Um, so that is what TDRs focus on. So the flip side then is elevating and uplifting and bringing into leadership and bringing into the center of the organizing, the programming, who is putting together your events, who is moderating them, who is getting paid to be there to speak about them is should be trans women of color. Yeah. Um, and then the larger trans people of color community. So yeah, that's what TDR is today. Well, when we're recording this, it's November 20th. So today is officially TDOR. Um, so I always love to just send a, a message of love and support to my sisters. And I'm probably going to send them um, a little cash app money. Also know that uh, just a fun fact, People of color, trans women of color are not typically on Venmo. They're on Cash App. Yeah. Uh, so often white people are like, oh, do you have Venmo? And I'm like, no, girl. The, the girls the, the, the girls and the dolls have Cash App. <laughs> and that's because Cash App doesn't, it's harder to get banned on Cash App. Mm. And, and Venmo often. Um, well, Venmo is a PayPal subsidiary and PayPal is the anti-sex work. And if you're even yes, sex work adjacent yes. or even give like this like hit the slice hit your sex working yes Venmo will shut you down it well in cash app will too so you have to make sure you know that you can't be like like there's been idiots who sent you know stuff on cash app and like for the news and you're like you dumbass like this is a shit we'll get our stuff shut down right. but the newest thing that the the dolls are using and i say dolls it's a term that's used um in celebration to honor sort of the creation and detail work and, and drive mm -hmm. that we've all put into ourselves to create ourselves often beautiful women um but um you know many of us now are on zelle so zelle is becoming the oh new yeah i've heard of that one yeah, because you can just basically send someone a Zelle request and no matter what their bank information is, it's just, it's sort of like an online invoice system. Absolutely. And it's also important to do that if you're meeting someone and you are going to engage in sex work or you are going to like exchange nudes and be like, I want to get compensated for this work I put into these beautiful photos. Um, it also documents on when you receive it who the person is you're meeting so you already have a paper trail and frankly if someone's going to try to hurt or harm you they're less likely to actually want to share their information with you yes yes mm -hmm. i you know beast do what you got to do sex work is work but do be safe as you can unfortunately fosta and sesta has made that much more difficult these days to sort of keep that uh that safety net with the screen you know you sex workers often cannot utilize the tools and resources that they had gotten used to digitally before FOSTA and SESTA was put in place so glad that that's one little thing that folks can do to make themselves feel you know safer and if that yeah if that guy because it's going to be guys usually that guy isn't willing to pay or send you his info don't bother Girl, literally, 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 literally. One of my sisters in Seattle, I mean, she's so phenomenal. I have loved her. She's been, I, I just, I'm in awe of her. She's a 26-year-old um, trans woman of color, and she just survived brutal gun violence. She um, got shot and was literally left dead, bleeding out in the street by a guy who was basically digging her around, who said he would pay her, met up with her, and then, you know, didn't have the money 
wasn't going to pay her. She was doing that as a way to survive, of course. So no judgment mm-hmm. on her. But, um, you know, if they had found her one minute later, she'd be dead. And she is just oh. resilient and amazing and beautiful. And she was the one who really instilled in me um, that deposits as well are necessary. Because she's like, if, if I had gotten a deposit, right, if he had paid a portion of what the total was, I would have known his information. I would have known who he was. I could have done my background check on him. I could have done Mr. Number, which is another great app to know if you're doing sex work. Mr. Number? Mr. Number, you can verify your clients. So the girls will write actual comments on Mr. Number. So if you type in a number, they'll be like, he's been calling, girl. He's a tranny chaser. He doesn't pay. Girl, he, he tried to assault me. It's a whole thing. It's a whole system. Thank you for that. Yes. Because yes, I love being able to share resources like yep. that with people. Mr. Number. Okay. Mr. Number. So you have to, I think, pay for for a year, but it's not much. And, um, you know. For your safety. I mean. Safety. I mean, yeah. so if you're going to meet someone doing a background, so we'll do some quick harm reduction checks, you know, doing a background check on him, um, finding out his information. You can usually translate that over to Facebook and, you know, just see who he is, you know, see if he has a wife, he has a kid, if he's got family, you can usually tell where he's at, you know, you can sometimes you can tell his politics, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then the other one that's you can use that's um, white pages is you can look that up. So if somebody ever texts you, and they're texting you from a number that says non-fixed or VOIP number. Mm-hmm. It's a Google voice number, which means that it's actually not real. Yeah. Um, and so you never meet clients when they text you from a non-verified number because they can be anyone. It can, they can also yes. be cops. Yes, they could. So, mm-hmm. so um, you know, that's why the girls love when we have iPhones and it shows up in blue because the law enforcement <laughs> doesn't, use app, doesn't use iPhones. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Good to know. For real, I would love to do a separate conversation with you about harm reduction tips for sex work in the future. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do an episode about that. Absolutely. Well, let's dive into some shit talking about like what's going on with trans organization in Kansas City. How long has transformations been a thing, by the way? Uh, since 2006. I initially got the funding and all that for it. Mm-hmm. And then... um at the time, it was really interesting because, you know, my gender's always, always been a journey. Mm-hmm. And I was like, um, basically like, you know, I was concerned that because I hadn't come out in some public way as trans that I couldn't lead it. Um, and I don't think I could have, honestly. I think that, like, I think that young people needed to see somebody who was like living their experience in a way that reflected what they were going through. Mm-hmm. So we brought on a um, kind of like a young, uh, just graduated from, actually, I think they were still in social work school, but they were um, like a young white trans activist mm-hmm. um, and kind of was like mentoring them. And it went really well for a while. And then um, the white fragility thing played out within our own organization where like um, they really kind of, were very stuck on not wanting to do racial equity work at all, frankly. Um, um, and so it got really, it, it really kind of fractured our organization in some ways because we, um, we really try to make an intentional pivot to affirm and uplift trans young girls of color because what we saw over time is that um, when you do a one size fits all model for trans youth and non-binary youth, um, often 
the people who are used to accessing resources, who are used to being, you know, oh, something's being offered, I'm going to go grab it. Well, for white folks, that's white people. (laughs) So, so we were having all these really sweet, affirming white parents from like the burbs bring their kids into transformations. And at the time, like the lead advisor was like a white trans guy. And so their kids were seeing somebody that reflected themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, which is great. Like that, that I think was important. The problem was that it all, like, I feel like the, the person that was leading it almost kind of was coasting and not mm-hmm. actually like, so then we would have kids of color show up in the shelter system, or we would have like trans girls show up, trans girls of color. Mm-hmm. And the culture was so dominated by like 12, 13 year old white, um, trans boys that these girls would show up and it would be like, kind of like a kind of a little bit like um like a trans boy emo fest Mm. (laughs) and they would show up and be like okay like I don't know if this is for me and then like the 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 facilitator you know there would be like little microaggressions and things that play out you know and like there would be a girl showing up in the shelter system and then you'd have like a kid complaining about how you know a teacher misgender them in school. And this is a kid who doesn't have any family right now and who's been chronically homeless for two years. And so we, I'd be like, Hey, we got to reframe that. We need to like, we, you know, like this isn't affirming for these kids. Like they're seeing these young people here with a lot of privilege and a lot of support. Mm -hmm. And ideally, yes, every trans youth should be supported and affirmed. Like every kid should be affirmed for who they are. Absolutely. But that's not how it plays out right? Like we, we see these systems all the time, not support certain youth. And so um, when we kind of call this person a task and we're like, we need you to um, like to speak up about this, to challenge, you know, these, like you're their role model to like set examples around, you know, talking about race and talking about the intersections, like they just were like refusing to do so and literally throwing tantrums. And we had all of the trans women of color who were part of the advising team like leave because of this person Mm -hmm. like actually like quit and um so we had to do a deep overhaul on the inside and then when this person actually they ended up leaving it on their own accord they like blasted through the community some like horrible stuff about our organization Mm -hmm. um which is just like a manifestation of white supremacy like you know what I mean like white people when they're called to task and they don't want to do it then they're like, okay, well, I'm going to use the power, the societal, right, social media power I have now to try to like turn these white parents who are following me on my Facebook page or these white trans people, because frankly, it was like no trans people of color listen to this person, but like, you know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. just blowing all that up. So within our own trans <laughs> organizing in Kansas City, it's been it's been a journey to kind of get to where we are. And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues. Like, uh, like, frankly, a lot of the organizing that's happening across the city is being done by white trans people who have been called to task numerous times, not just by me, but like, by like other amazing trans women of color who are like from Kansas City, who have been in the community for like years, who have been out and like living their truth since they're 14 and on the streets and walking truths, you know? And they're like, you need to be putting us at the center. And they refuse to do so. Mm-hmm. So um, Kansas City is in a really interesting place around 
trans organizing right now. And I think what's good for us with transformations is that with after COVID, we actually made an intentional shift, like I said, to explicitly affirm and uplift and center trans girls of color and then trans kids in survival mode, right? Because it's because like there are white trans kids who um who do need support, but those are kids who are in the shelter system, who are in children's services, who don't have families that are bringing them to the group. So we were like, it's not like we're not going to serve white trans youth. Mm -hmm. It's just what support systems are behind any youth, right? Yes. Yes. Because when you've got a white parent who's like, oh, my kid is trans. I can drive them. Mm-hmm. I can support them. They've got something at home. It's very, very different than yeah. the, like you say, the the black trans girl who is doing sex work, who's been kicked out of their home, who cannot make it the 10 mile journey to wherever the location is easily. It's either finding money, you know, getting on the bus. Who were they turning to for support? They have no one. Well, and then, and then when you, then when she actually makes it to the group, she shows up and it's like all of these complaints about these little sort of like flicks of injustice, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, I've been living with injustice my entire life. Yeah. I'm homeless because my parents won't accept me for who I am. Or I'm homeless because of structural systemic racism, right? Mm -hmm. Structural systemic poverty. I'm homeless because like, you know, when police respond um, to a complaint from a parent, when a white parent calls, like they're way less likely to take that white kid and put them in juvenile detention center than they are for a black youth. So like, there's all mm-hmm. of these things that play out. And then we're in some sense, I was, we are trying to, um, serve all. And we were realizing that just frankly, um, there's not enough analysis in Kansas city with just like overall that's happening with a lot of the community youth organizations. I mean, the youth organizations in Kansas City are predominantly led by white women and nonprofit and social work, well-intentioned, you know, pseudo-woke white women that are down to talk about racism until it's time to do an analysis on themselves. Mm-hmm. We're also in a community that is, you know, white gay men have not historically supported transformations. They have not funded us. They mm-hmm. have not... Um, they have not shown up to care about trans youth. They, I literally remember when I arrived in Kansas City in 2000, uh, in 2014, and I immediately, three months later, four months later, I arrived in, in uh, July of 2014. In October of 2014, I was working on the homicide case. And I was working on the murder of Deontay Green, who was a young gay black man who was murdered. Mm-hmm. And I arrived at an agency at the time that was doing anti-violence work, LGBT anti-violence work. And um, there was no, there was only previous to me, there was only one person of color who ever worked at that agency. And they left because of the leadership at the time being really effed up and problematic and racist. I came aboard. And so I was immediately like, okay, like, let's dive into communities of color here in Kansas city. And like, and they all didn't have a relationship with this agency. Mm-hmm. And so when I arrived, um, I started building intentional relationships with leaders of color, specifically black leaders. And four months later, when this homicide happened, the only reason that kind of, kind of my agency and we got wind of it, I think was because of the relationship that, that I had built and that we had built myself and the other people together with each other. And, um, so we learned about the homicide case 
And I got appointed to then basically be the community liaison on that homicide. And I was mm-hmm. also managing a two, a two statewide youth program at the time. Mm. And then trickle effect, you know, fast forward nine months later, we have three more homicides. Mm-hmm. And so I was my start to Kansas City was actually arriving to build a multi-statewide LGBT anti-violence program, and then very quickly also getting put on to do community bereavement work and homicide, um, you know, hate crime, community advocacy, and support all the chosen family of trans women who had been murdered. And like, it was just a lot. It was that so is a lot. Wow. Girl, it was a lot. You know, and mind you, I was like also single and like... <sighs> trying in my free time to like navigate love and dating and relationships. And like, it was really, it was, it was, it was crazy. It was. Yeah. Was that the gentleman that you mentioned, the young man that got murdered? Was that the one that got murdered on main street by Walgreens? No, that was, that was, that was like four years later. Okay. Yeah. Cause I knew there was, um, that was, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blinking on their name right now. All my years are kind of. Yeah. My years are all kind of blending together. It's like, and they what, were like, happened yeah, I don't know how they identified, but they were very like femme presenting and like they like wore makeup and like, yeah, I mean, they said that wasn't a hate crime. I mean, that's the thing about the hate crime laws and advocacy in general, like the Matthew Shepard, James Bird Act are just a fucking joke. Like actually hardly ever have hate crimes against LGBTQ people actually been federally prosecuted right. and, and and then much less, so you have the epidemic of trans women of color being murdered in this country. And like, I think maybe less than on five, you know, on one hand, has there been less than five actual prosecutions of people who have murdered trans women of color. And when we're killed, it is horrific. It is mutilation. It is mm-hmm. brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was working on the, the murder case of Tamara Dominguez, that was really my start to understanding kind of like the Latinx community in in, in Chicago, in Kansas City. Wasn't she the one who, like, did they ever find her murderer? They did. They caught okay. him. Yeah. They caught him eventually. But she was the one who, I mean, she was um, over on Independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was run over back and forth three times one. By, mm. by a large SUV. That's um, horrible. And so had horrible. Her, had her poor body woman. demolished. You know, and then afterwards, like, and then when she was killed, there were other trans women of color who saw it happen. And the, and the killer saw, knew that they saw it. So then these girls had to go underground. And these mm-hmm. girls were not going out to grab groceries. They were scared to, to leave. They weren't sure, you know, if it was gang affiliated or not. So there was all of this fear in the community, you know. And then, like, we have, like, you know, like these fundraisers happen at Missy B's or Hamburger Mary's that are for like a white or white adjacent person to get money for like a trans affirming surgery. And like the girls are being murdered, mutilated here at Kansas City. Nobody's actually doing anything when they're black and brown and they don't know them in the bar scene um, because the bar scenes, of course, from white bar scenes. Because actually Tamara was very well known and respected within like her Latinx circle with her, within her friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them, you know, predominantly spoke Spanish. A lot of them were first and second generation. Um, she was actually under asylum from Mexico when she arrived. So she had already gone through all sorts of trauma to even get here. Mm-hmm. And then she arrived and she was living her truth. She was, you know, finding her way. And it seemed like she was overall happy. And uh, the murder was just really so sad because 
when when it happened to like all of her chosen family that were let you know latinos predominantly spoke spanish and they were scared to even talk to police because of ice Mm -hmm. so they were scared to you know about a lot of them were undocumented Mm -hmm. so we actually didn't see it play out the same way as for instance like within black communities or like when like um deontay was murdered or when Tehran Carson was murdered, we were talking about, or when, you know, all like, um, you know, some Brianna Hill, like mm-hmm. the community showed up and said like this, we, we, we own this person in terms of like, we know them, we love them. We can speak about them. We'll talk about them. We'll seek justice. We didn't have that play out within Latinx communities the same way because the community itself there was a barrier of language. Mm-hmm. So all the advocacy, all of the, you know, news articles are trying to do these things in English. And then on top of that, there's, un, you know, half this community or more is undocumented. Mm-hmm. So they're not even wanting to talk to tr- traditional systems. And so um, it's been frustrating as like a light-skinned, multiracial, like half Mexican, half white trans woman, because I really feel like Latina trans women in Kansas City have also some very specific things that they're going through that I just don't think are addressed at all. Um, And I think that that community on itself is really on its own. I think that they're very much like the only, the only people that are going to look out for us, there's not even a sense of community in some ways, Mm -hmm. because they're like, so like, I got to do me. And these resources that are offered, like, I don't even know these resources exist, because they're not even offered in a language I can access, right? So, well, then what, what is to be done then in our community? I mean, you are an activist and an educator and you've got, you know, the things that you're doing in the community to try to help educate people. But I mean, what, what really is it going to take in this community specifically, you think for things to change to where it's not so focused on the white trans experience. It's not so focused on just the white lens at all people have to give up power. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I mean, we've, we've, I've been part of, I know organizers have been part of multiple conversations. So that's the fucked up thing, Kristen, is that it's not like these conversations haven't happened. They've been happening for a while now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of white performance, right? Like after George Floyd, there was white perform, you know, there, I think there's probably going to be again because of, you know, the, um, Kyle Rittenhouse House being fucking acquitted. You know what I mean? There's constant reminders specifically mm-hmm. to Black folks in this country that the system does not work. It was never meant to work, never meant to keep them safe, that their bodies are criminalized, their lives are criminalized. I mean, the, the, the criminal injustice system was literally built off uh, tenants of slavery yes. and, you know, of colonialism and exploitation and, you know, and genocide. So these are things that still play out um, on the flip side, it's exciting to see like some phenomenal local Black Lives Matters organizers and activists like, um, uh, you know, um, uh, Operation Liberation in Kansas City, um, like talk about the fact that they finally had the first KCPD officer um, in 80 years. Yeah, no, more, I think more. Yeah, I think it was what Kansas City Star reported the officer who was convicted in Cameron Lamb's. Uh, murder he only got convicted like second degree manslaughter or something like that Mm -hmm. but that's the first conviction that they've had of a white officer in kansas city in 80 years for killing a black person 
Yes. And, um, you know, Black Rainbow is a newer um, organizing collective that's doing great work that's also trying to be very intersectional inclusive of Black trans women. Um, so there, so I think that like the younger set of organizers in Kansas City of like Black, specifically of Black community organizers, and then people who are in solidarity with, with Black Lives Matters seem to be doing some really kick-ass work. And I'm excited to see where, where they go. And I think folks should definitely pour their resources and funds into them. Um, I also feel like some of the older, I mean, I'm gonna keep it real. Some of the older gatekeepers in Kansas City who are black and brown leaders, um, I think have really done a disservice to um, colluding with and supporting white supremacy as well. I think that there's um, certain people that, everybody totes around when it's time for, you know, uh, when the next black gay man is murdered and they'll be the first one speaking about it. And within their own community, you know, they're exploiting young gay black youth. They're having, you know, sex parties where then they're, you know, getting their HIV counts uh, for, you know, the program they run to go do HIV testing because they're testing them while they're, you know, fucking them. I mean, there's, cool. there's shit like that that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that <laughs> I just think Spill that the, the tea, please, girl. I mean, though, I think that the white gay community in general in Kansas City is really fucking toxic. Um, and I knew that. Like, that's the thing. I knew that when I arrived. Now, mind you, I have lived for 15 years esque prior to arriving in Kansas City as like a real, real like as gay, right? Like gay, mm-hmm. gay, 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 gay. I have a documentary series I did called 50 Faggots following 10 self-identified effeminate gay men in New York, DC, and Chicago for four years. Mm-hmm. So I was in Chicago, I was in New York, I was in DC, like during the Obama era, right? When Obama became president, like pooching and walking up down the streets, following these big city personalities, you know, like being like such a little, and I love this word because I self-identified as it, as being such a little faggot. And then I come to Kansas City and it's so limited in how Mm -hmm. representation and gender diversity can even exist within gay male communities. So I arrived and I was like, oh my God, like I'm I'm gonna be, I'm like, this is gonna be a real hard path. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't seen, for instance, like in Chicago, there are such beautiful, thriving gender diverse like representations of gay men of color and they all have these phenomenal analysis right like I could sit around a room and we could all talk about white fuckery and get it I found that we would I came to Kansas City and it's like the the quite frankly it was like the gay men of color most often were afraid to talk about anything because the white people controlled everything and they were in some way indebted to these white people whether it was that they wanted them to love them and affirm them and fuck them or date them or it was because they're the ones who tip them at the gay bars you know when they perform or it's because they have a job at the gay bar that they run or whether it's because they want to get in the next nonprofit and the only nonprofits that are run in Kansas City at that time back in 2014 were by white gay men mm-hmm. right like all of these things are playing out that have allowed a culture to exist and be set up that says traditionally people of color queer people of color in Kansas City have been silenced and scared and because right when you collude so much over time what ends up happening is that that is the norm. And so you don't see it as weird anymore. You don't see a different route out. And I will say too, Kansas City's never been kind to people who come from outside Kansas City. 
Mm-hmm. So if you arrive and you're from outside Kansas City and you're like, hey, I just have this different analysis. It doesn't mean y'all are doing it wrong, but like, let me just provide this. They don't like it. They're very like Kansas City only for there, which is weird because I'm from St. Louis and like I St. Louis is hell of elitist and has tons of problems. But I feel oh, yeah. like, but I feel like on the flip side, you come from St. Louis and there's a high likelihood you're not going to stay in St. Louis. Like a lot of those kids who go through the high school systems, especially the private school systems, like they leave, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't stay in Kansas City or stay in St. Louis your entire life. I feel like a lot of Kansas Cityans, like they're here and this is what they have and they're very proud of it. And so because of that, yeah. they're very protective and like, this is what we do, right? Like we do, this is how we are and we don't want to be challenged. And so um, it, there's, it's been a real, a real journey to see where it's, it's moving and going. I think transformations, and I think our leadership team we have now is phenomenal. We mostly have trans people of color leading our organization. Mm-hmm. We've had the most trans women of color out of any organization I know in Kansas City, frankly, in Missouri or Kansas, leading, you know, our work. Um, I continue to be amazed and impressed and humbled and like mentored by some of these women every day. Um, I am really excited for where we're going, but I will say that like, we're, I frankly, I think we're on the cutting edge. I think we're, we're really creating some of the innovative work that nobody else is doing. Um, and so I, we're at a point too, where we came up and we realized we're like, we're not, we're not going to take the time to continue to like work with the same folks that we've, that we've been having these conversations with. Right. Mm -hmm. We're doing statewide work now across Missouri and Kansas. So I'd rather invest our energy and talent and passion and um, love into spaces that are willing to receive it. And that might be the middle of Missouri somewhere. That might be the middle of Kansas. And we also cover, you know, Northwest Arkansas. So we're covering the Ozark region. Mm -hmm. And, and what an important time for us to be doing this work. I mean, we just had two weekends ago, you know, a fucking serial killer caught. That's right. Like, and they I, were targeting sex workers, right? Targeting sex workers, AKA targeting trans women of yes. color mm-hmm. who were using sex workers as a way to survive. I mean, the silence on that has been shocking, right? Like, like there was, there was a serial killer who's murdered at least six people I saw from what they released, it looked mm-hmm. like everyone with the exception of one person was a woman or mm-hmm. a young, or was a young woman or a woman. They've killed at least two people in Kansas City. We're still waiting within our trans women of color community to find out who they killed because, of course, they haven't released the information yet. And then when they do, there's a chance they're going to dead name them and yeah. the man, mm-hmm. right? When like that's actually not who they are at all. So it's just shocking to see like, even statewide orgs that claim to be doing this work have not elevated or provided resources, have not lifted this. Kansas City itself hasn't said anything. Um, I just got asked to be part of the special prosecutors committee for Jackson County recently because mm. they're taking on the Brianna Hill case against BCPD. Good, good. Yeah. And so they're preparing for that. And um, I reached out to, um, you know, Gene uh, Baker's Peters and I was like, or, uh, and I was like, hey, uh, what's going on with this, you know? So I, so I'm trying to find out more information, but yeah, cause they have been kind of tight lipped about it. I think I just happened to see a quick clip about it, like on Twitter or something. And it, it sounded, did most of it happen pretty quickly? Like within just a couple of weeks? Yeah. I mean, it literally happened. I sound like beginning of November to like November 9th. Mm-hmm. And you know, what the gag is that was right when, um, 
I think like the two, the two days after they started this, this man, this person started their, their killing spree starting in St. Louis and then going across taking Amtrak. Yeah. They rode the Amtrak over. Yeah. Like they, that's when we were doing this Midwest leadership retreat for trans people and trans women of color. So I'm not a spiritual person. I don't believe in like, you know, God like that really, but I will say that there was something really surreal about coming back from Seattle, getting to St. Louis, because we flew into St. Louis on like November 2nd. Mm-hmm. And like, this is when they were still in St. Louis killing the girls. And then myself, and then two of my sisters of color drove from St. Louis down to the Ozarks. Other girls drove from Kansas City to the Ozarks. Another girl drove from Fayetteville to the Ozarks. There was something I feel like there was something looking out for us. The fact that it actually took us out of these two cities where this, these killings were actively happening at the same time, brought us to the Ozarks together and we were safe. Mm-hmm. And then we literally come back the day after we come back, the FBI releases the news that they caught a serial killer. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the kind of shit that frankly, if this was happening to white cis women, the whole fucking nation would be talking about it. Like, it's just, it's shocking. It's disgusting that like, there's no rage around it. And, you know, all what I'm doing is like, I check in with my sisters and I'm like, how are you doing? You good? Like, do what do you need? Mm-hmm. But there should be a larger analysis at this point in, in the community. And if it's not there, it's on like people like you are people listening to this, right? Like white cis people to mm-hmm. say to your trans siblings, why aren't you talking about trans women of color, right? To say to the gays, why aren't you elevating those conversations? Why aren't there people, why aren't there trans women of color running your organization or on major leadership positions? Like yeah. those are the conversations to have. I mean, you're in a really unique position because it's you, right? But yeah. like, <laughs> but like you still have but a But I do have a sphere of influence, absolutely. Sure. And, you know, I think that I, I'm certainly not going to give anybody a pass you know, it, but it did take a trans woman of color. This friend of mine saying, you know, this person is in a leadership position is fabulous. Don't get me wrong, but they also are coming into this as the lens that they grew up with as a white man. Mm-hmm. And you need to recognize too, that that's their lens. And yes, they are a trans woman, but they're not a trans woman of color. And that lens is very specific to their white experience. And they're going to operate based on that white experience. Oh, girl, you're talking about and, what I was oh, Go ahead, I mean, cut you off. And I was just like, well, you are correct. <laughs> and that was a few years ago. And I was so glad to have that conversation with her because it did make me go like, yes, this is a trans woman. But also there's a lens there that is still specific to the context and conditioning they received with their white upbringing. Yeah. For sure. Well, I like to call um, the real the real housewives of Johnson County <laughs> are the real trans wives of Johnson County. <laughs> and you know, and yeah. it's and, and there's a whole and there's a whole a whole separate community, right, of older white trans women who have been, you know, on leadership at Cerner, who have been in, you know, running, you know, uh, citywide facilities or agencies or programs, and then they have acquired their wealth. Mm-hmm. They have acquired their resources. They've had 30 years of being a parent, of being able to navigate family and, you know, uh, relationships. They've had children mm-hmm. and then they transition, right? They're like mid forties, early fifties. And they're like, I'm a woman. 
Now, have they always been women? Yeah, probably. Like, I totally, I'm not, I'm not going to invalidate that somebody's not, I mean, who am I to talk? I, I transitioned in my mid thirties, right? They don't necessarily know that. I might say I'm 28 on the dating apps. Put it <laughs> but, you know, but you know what I mean? Like, but yeah, I mean like that, that whenever somebody transitions valid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The difference is though, is that if you've spent over, you know, over half, uh, you know, half a, if you spend five decades on, in, on earth, in your life, being shaped by the analysis, being shaped by the idea, because let's be mm-hmm. frank, the social gender scripts of what does it mean to be a white boy, a white man, you are brought up in a culture that says you deserve everything. Yep. I want to take on my Paris is burning uh, ballroom voice here and be like, you own everything, right? Like <laughs> they they live in that world yeah. that says yeah. I deserve access. The world is their oyster. The world is their oyster. I deserve access. I deserve resources. And then I transition and I'm like, a bratty white woman, you know, like I want my wine and I want my cars and I want my things. And I, you know, I want my, now I want my leadership position as a white woman and I'm going to go get it. And there is something about the tenacity that these women have. That is, that is frankly, I wish all white women, I wish all women period had it right. Like is that Mm -hmm. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this, but then there is a very deep, 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 deep embedded uh, sense of I don't, I, I'm not, you know, I don't owe anyone uh, a handout. Mm-hmm. I don't see race, right? I had a struggle because it was hard for me to come into my own. So everybody else, you know, and I were all in the same playing field, or if anything, they actually co-opt the scripts that white women are taught, which are victimization. So they've been in this place of entitlement, 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 resources, 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 right? They've acquired all those resources to then fast track their transition, to get their FFS, to get their body work, you know, to sort of like get sort of the surged out, you know, housewife fifties, you know, like all, all the, you know, housewives of Atlanta or housewives of New York, they get that look. Right. Because at that point, all the girls kind of look the same, whether they're cis or trans, you know, they just <laughs> search out. So they get to that point. And then on the flip side, now they're performing femininity. They're learning from their white women counterparts in the same positions of wealth as them. Mm-hmm. And those are often bratty women. Those are often very entitled women. So now they're very much like, Oh, you know, they're Karen's, right? Like, oh, I didn't get this thing. I'm gonna whine and complain about it and be a white woman, you know? It's just, it's a it's a gross cycle. In some ways, it's the epitome of white supremacy in all ways. Mm-hmm. So I'll be real with you and I'll say that most trans women of color I know have a very hard time with white trans women. We do not um, often see them in sisterhood with us, see them mm-hmm. in solidarity with us, um, I actually find white cis women to be easier to work with in some ways. I mean, they're still like hella problematic and like, but I feel like there's that level of like, they're like, I don't know about the trans experience period. So like, I'm willing to hear. And I feel like for white trans women, um, they're often not like that. And unfortunately, most of the white trans women I know in Kansas City, even the ones who I feel like, um, have done good community work when push comes to shove and they're called to the table to address racism, racial inequality. 
and they have to actually give up resources are create space at the table. They're not doing it. Or make a bigger table right. either way. But yes, it's the, there's not making enough room. I, I will say this. Also, but sometimes there is, sometimes there is enough resources to make a bigger mm-hmm. table. That's sometimes true. the That's choice true. actually has to be, I, you I know, need to step away. I need yeah. to step away. There's only like one leadership position. Right. right? Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I will say this. I, and if anyone is listening and they feel like this hits home for them, well, then this was meant for you. If, if this isn't you, then you, you can know, private message can, me. You know, I'll leave you a list after. <laughs> but like, yes, I, what I have witnessed myself is that there is almost like a uh, properness to some of the, the white gay people in this community that for some reason they feel like black and brown people don't fit into this proper mold. And again, I think, as you said, a lot of that is just simply rooted in white supremacy of, you know, I may be gay, but I'm not like that kind of gay. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. <laughs> you, you can't create mm-hmm. limits for yourself to say like, well, I'm the prim and proper kind of gay. You know, I, you know, have a nice house and, and I, you know, have children in this, you know, school and blah, blah, blah. Well, good for you. But that's not every gay person's lived experience. Mm-hmm. That's not every queer person or every trans person's lived experience. And there does feel like oftentimes the G is given so much more attention in this town. They're given way more resources. They dominate a lot more of the conversations than like the L's, the T's, the B's, you know, the I've Q's. I've I've always had a a strong um a strong love for queer women. Um and and I think it goes back to my roots in Chicago. Like you know, because I I came out in St. Louis. I was I experienced a lot of adversity and trauma. I like was in the shelter system. My first high school kicked me out an all boy Catholic private high school. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom kicked me out at the same time. Like I was in the shelter system. I was on the streets for a bit. I was couch surfing. And then um, I ended up getting into a second high school. And really it was because of my guidance counselor who was so badass, Annette Entman, so amazing. Mm -hmm. She, um, and she really helped get me so actually, this was a funny thing. Like, um, I wasn't even going to apply for college. And she was because, like, you know, you have to apply for college. And every time you apply, you have to pay a fee. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I didn't have money like that. Right. And, and my school didn't have money like that to pay because I was the second high school is an inner city public high school above Del Mar and Union in St. Louis. So if anyone's from St. Louis, they know that that's a, probably a, a fairly rougher high school, although I loved my second high school. It shaped my life um, called Soldan. But um, when I was, uh, when I was in high school, um, Mrs. Entman was like, you, we're going to get you fee waivers to apply for college. So I could basically apply to any school I was thinking of going to. Right. And because of my experience, I didn't actually have to pay the fees. Nice. So because of that, it, I, I ended up getting accepted into a variety of schools, but I chose DePaul university in Chicago because they gave me the biggest scholarship package. Like it was basically a full ride package. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I went to DePaul in Chicago. Um, but uh, when I was there, um, I really, I had this, this hope, this fantasy of going to Boys Town, Chicago. And like, I had been through so much shit as a kid with my family and with coming out and just like a lot of, a lot of stuff that I finally was like, I'm in Chicago, I'm away from St. Louis, I'm able to heal, I'm able to like, 
really start to process these 17 years of chaos of my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when I, I was also under kind of the impression of, I think what a lot of people think of with San Francisco, like you're going to go to San Francisco. It's going to be rainbows. There's going to be like, it's going to be like, like a scene from, um, fame where people are like dancing <laughs> with cars. So they're like, welcome child. And yes. they're, like, they're like, they're like, welcome. We embrace you. And I really kind of thought like boys town was going to be that, right? Like, it was just going to be like gay men, like running floral shops and gay men with their dogs and like gay men that are like, welcome, be part of this community. And it was kind of, lecherous like it was really predatory mm-hmm. i mean i've always looked young so when there's I was, some predatory fuckers here in town too girl for sure so when i was when i was like 18 and off to school i mean i probably felt i looked probably when i was 15 mm-hmm. you know and i was always very feminine looking so mm-hmm. i was like a, a real like truly the definition of a twink and uh but i i never thought i was a twink because i always thought twinks were white um and i was you know i was some people thought I was white, but a lot of people didn't once I got to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember going to Boys Town, and I would, I once I turned 21, especially, I would start going to the gay bars, and just constantly, I was touched. I was groped. I had my shirt pulled up. I had people try to put their hands on me. I had guys shove me into corners and try to, like, you know, hump me through my clothes. Um, I remember being at a catering event in Chicago, and I was working for a gay catering company. And I was doing these like really high end sort of like private house parties that these gay men would have. And Mm I had like the owner like actually shove me on the counter and like try to pull down my pants and like fuck me at a gay party. And like Mm -mm. the other other gay staff saw it and just kind of watched and like afterwards was like, are you okay? And I pushed him off and I was like, yeah, like that was so fucked up. Um, And I noticed over and over that gay communities did not have the language did not have the analysis, did not have generally the concern to address sexual violence and sexual harassment, much less racism and all of these other things. And if anything, it was normalized. It was the idea was that because I was gay, I was supposed to be hypersexual. Because I was Mm -hmm. gay, I was supposed to want this. And I didn't even start having sex really. Like I didn't really start doing hookup culture until I was like 25, 26. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I was in school as like a little goody two shoes, like pretty asexual, you know, just like running gay groups and shit. (laughs) You know, part of me has wondered how much of that in the gay community has been perpetuated by white men. I mean, what I have seen here in the gay community, and again, if, if you're listening to this and you're offended by this, then you're probably one of the ones doing it. But I've seen way too many people in the gay community here who don't understand what the fuck consent is. Oh, for sure. I have at more than one event, not really actually like at the chamber, but after hours, you know, when we're at the bars, we're at the gay restaurants, bars and stuff like that. More than once had to be like, hey, we don't, we don't just touch people without their consent. What are you doing here? Like, you can't just go up and like grab somebody like this. Yeah, they looked at me like I had two like, who the fuck are you? I'm like, no, in your space, honey. Right. But I'm kind of see like, hey, do we need to have conversations about consent? We are in a public setting. That is not okay. And then it was, you just don't understand the culture. No, I do understand consent. Yeah. And I and I can I see that that look, you know, because I've seen so many women do that in their lives. Like, oh God. Like, nobody does not matter your gender identity or orientation. Nobody should feel like 
crouching away from another human being because they are invading their space and touching their body without their consent. But it's usually white men that are perpetuating it too. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, um, I think that a lot of us, so like, you know, my friendship started when I was in Chicago with a group of effeminate, um, kind of soft-spoken, like, uh, very, just very feminine, mixed, and uh, often mixed, uh, young gay men of color. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this whole group of friends that I had, and I love it. Oh my God, it's such, I just love that whole time of my life. Um, but we really, it was really with them that I connected, and I really started a process and like realized, because you know, a lot of us do, we're not navigating like the intersections of what it meant to be like half white or like have you know have a parent who's half white and also be you know a a person of color and like what that meant where there was sort of a a specific experience we dealt with with white men Mm -hmm. often or even within our own communities of color because often like our like you know if we were black or we were latino or we were mexican right like those communities are actually sometimes the hardest on us Mm -hmm. um and so we're just navigating all that um but i think that I was telling you the whole story to say, like, I think for lesbians, I remember being so dis- so disgusted by gay men. And on the flip side, there was Andersonville in Chicago, which was historically the lesbian community. And so there was um, a place called Tees Bar and Grill. There was a place called Stargaze, which was actually, they had black, like black queer lesbian night. Mm-hmm. And my friends and I would go there. And that was absolutely the safest space I've ever felt. I mean, there are specific songs. I was just in New York, right? And I was with my friend, one of my friends from Chicago named Aaron. And we were um, we were at this sort of like country club in New York and we were hearing this song come on. It's um, I Want to Thank You by um, the, uh, uh, oh, it's the sisters. They're a gospel group. Um, it's, I want, it's I Want to Thank You, Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. And this song, I think it's Alicia Myers actually who might sing it. But the song came on and we have a specific memory of being in this club full of like black queer studs and femme black queer women, you know, like dancing and grooving and getting it, but also like keeping us safe, right? Like we were there as these little sissies in the middle of this dance floor and they were living for us, right? They're like, yes, dance and cheering us on and affirming us. Nobody was touching us. Like they were just very like but they also were like loving our gender presentation, right? They weren't like, what's wrong with you? Man up. This is kind of gross. Why are you wearing eyeliner? Mm -hmm. And so like, it was just such a beautiful experience. And so I've always felt that queer women, yeah, I know they're messy. I know they can have problems. I know there can be a lot of like overlap of who dates who and drama, you know, as one of my friends in Kansas City says like drama. But (laughs) also I feel like, there's a culture within it that has said, we will not buy into patriarchy. We will not buy mm-hmm. into um, the white man that has harmed us in a lot of ways. And I think, especially with queer women of color, I've always loved spaces with them in it. Um, I've also been hurt by queer women of color in Kansas City, frankly, too, once I got there, because I was told that I wasn't basically like, I don't really think that there's an analysis in Kansas City for brown organizers I think that is either you're black or you're white mm-hmm. and so I think that for a lot of people they were like well you're basically white or you are white and so I actually had a lot of friends when I first came that I found out later were telling 
other people of color that I was basically like a white boy or a white girl. And I was like, what? But then like with me, we would have conversations about being mixed and about racism and stuff. So I, Chicago, that didn't happen. There was such mm-hmm. like mixed, thriving, all types of people of color that it was just different. Um, but yeah, I think gay men have really, I, I do think that when we grow up as kids, I think that people who want to harm kids target children that they know are outside the box. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of effeminate young boys, I think that predators, people who harm, prey on kids like us. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have been harmed. A lot of us have dealt with ongoing sexual violence and ongoing trauma. And it's a conversation that we still, as a community, because like even though I've transitioned, like I still feel like I'm always going to be slightly a part of the gay community because I spent so much of my formative years in it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I've put work into it. Shit. My God, I put, <laughs> I put the years in it. You know, it's so funny. I got it. I got in trouble like a year and a half ago for getting in an argument, not even an argument, really just having a, having a real talk conversation with another younger trans woman, light skinned trans woman of color outside Woody's uh, on the patio and it was literally between her and I, but all these fucking little gays like jumped in and got involved and like try to like fight me at one point. And thankfully I was with two buff gay guys and my friends. They, they like, you know, stopped it, but it was just so dramatic. And I was having this whole moment with her where I was actually talking about how she needs to show up in, in solidarity with her sisters of color. But the conversation got, of course, taken away from us and taken by gays to manipulate and be and anyways at one point Mm -hmm. when they started jumping in you know I was like I was like back off faggots like back off like let us have this moment right and they were like oh she said faggot she said faggot she said faggot and I was like I am a I will say faggot all day every day let me tell you what I have put in 15 motherfucking years into this like I have been a faggot longer than it you all have even been out so like let's keep it 100 right it was just it was so funny because this the the sensitivity and the analysis right now from like younger gays was like you can't say that word and I'm like I'm allowed to say whatever the fuck word I want to say about myself and I've put in this work you were you know literally still in in middle school probably when I started my activist roots and I think that there's a lack of um there's a lack of respect for like our mentors and our elders at this point you know not that I'm like super old but I am 30 37 and it's like honor those who've done the work like when i meet older gay men especially who have been like in the hiv activist world and organizing world i love them mm-hmm. when i meet older trans women of color i love them now maybe not older white trans women but that's because they haven't they haven't lived in that world right they're new they're basically babies they've only been out for two years but if you give me an organizer who's seasoned around the edges and who's been doing the work in their community for 20 years I'm probably going to like them. I'm probably going to be like, even if I don't like them, I'm going to have mad respect for them. You know? And I feel like that gets lost a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for me being someone who's on the fringes of all this stuff, I, I admit I, I'll, I'll meet anybody. I'll talk to anybody, but I do struggle with at times knowing who's, how do I put this? Who's really in it? you know, versus who's kind of just enjoying the title that they have and the power that they have and at the organization that they're at. Um, there are definitely people that I love and respect in this community, but then there's other people that I'm like, I don't 
don't know about you so much. Like, I need to know more about you before I like I put my, you know, put my stamp on that one. Go ahead and show me that. Tell me their names. Off record, maybe. Yes. <laughs> Let me tell you the ones I love. I love Wolf Brack. Wolf? Wolf runs their urban art house. Okay. It's like black gay man. So sweet. So intersectional. His analysis. Really calm. Really like sees everything and still is like really like that's interesting i see that like he's very like he's that's wolf he's so great mm-hmm. um i love stefan singleton i do follow stefan i love stefan i love um uh i mean i love all the girls i love kelly new i love finel fristo i love gia blue i mean you get the girls on there they'll tell you the stories i mean um I love uh, Laron Hill, who is the only black gay bartender they've had in like fucking 10 years at Missy B's. Mm-hmm. He's seen it all. Laron, I mean, like, he's pretty great. I love um, for what she's doing for black urban Kansas City gay communities. I think she's doing great work, but I think she's only for that community. I don't think she has analysis to work outside that community, but I love Star Palmer. I think mm-hmm. Star does great work. I love Krayshawn McKinney, who is like one of the highest leadership positions of a, of a Black woman in an artistic position within any arts organizations in Kansas City. Um, I mean, these are all great, phenomenal people. But then there's people that like, for instance, like um, people aren't going to go talk to Laron, who probably should be talking about you know, white supremacy and gay gay communities. He's been in the fucking gay clubs for 10 years. But we've had a lot of people in the community who have been perpetrators of harm and who I don't think have done sort of any reconciliation or any like transformative justice work or community mediation work and stuff and kind of continue to gatekeep a lot of positions. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's a toss up, right? And I think that's the thing I will say about trans women of color. I think trans women of color are like, as opposed to white, white gay men, right? Cause like, stop. I think trans women of color have learned how to be in community with each other. Even if we don't like each other, even if we have falling out, so we're like, we're not going to be friends with this person anymore. We still want safety for each other. Mm-hmm. We still love each other. We still can have respect for the journey. Cause this is a very, hard and difficult and isolating journey. This is a journey that is filled with constant threats of violence, threats of safety, threats of threats of rape, threats of public outings, threats of public beatings, right? These are these are journeys that we go through and go on that frankly I don't know white gay men who go on that journey. I don't even know most gay men of color at this point who go on that journey. So maybe 50 years ago, but it's very different. It's very very different. different now. And there is a certain camaraderie for people when they're like, you know what, if there's, if you have good things and I have good things, if the community is safe for you, the community is safe for me. There's that understanding of mutual benefit for good things to be there for their, for everyone. It's time for a quick break. I promise it'll just be a minute, so stay tuned. I'll be right back after a few words that help me get paid. I don't know how much time we have. I would love to talk to you about sex. 
Let's do it. Absolutely. Well, you know, yeah, we can talk about any. I mean, that's your expertise. <laughs> well, do you have any I'm questions? Like, not about sex yet. Do you have any questions you want me to answer for you? Or you want to just like talk about like what what's no, going on in your life right now? Yeah, no. And I, I, I am excited, you know, because that's what part I think that you bring that's so different than other podcasts that I do is all. So everyone always wants to talk about the like the trauma of being, you know, a trans woman of color, right? The horrible things of what it is, right? It's TDR. Let's talk about how you're going to get killed or your sister's gotten killed. That is all really fucking real. But mm-hmm. we're also really resilient. All of the women I know are hella resilient. Mm-hmm. We're also hella like creative and we're really. I mean, we're beautiful women. Like we commit to our transformation in all ways. We are detail-oriented people. We are often really good at sex because if we have had to make vehicles and avenues of survival, and some of those have had to be through sex work because traditional employment, traditional workplaces and workforces won't hire us, Mm -hmm. we have to be good, right? You're not going to get paid if you suck at sex. (laughs) That's true. you, You know what I mean? You're not going to get $500 if you aren't delivering and giving some sort of fantasy creature in sex. Correct. So, like, so in some ways, like, these are the girls that everybody should talk to. Like, how do I, like, I mean, we should all be sex coaches. Shit. So I'm excited <laughs> to, like, have that conversation because I, I, have, I have had my own very difficult relationship with sex mm-hmm. throughout my life. And my body, and I, so fast forward, I'm in this relationship finally with this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, He is wonderful. He's so, like, he's so good to me. How'd you meet? We met, (laughs) I told you I was gay for 15 plus years. We met on Mm -hmm. Grindr. Yeah. So we met on Grindr. Um, Grindr has not, I just want to say, has not and is not often a safe space for trans women yeah i that's what i've heard um it's it's funny because they have ads up and they like will advertise that they're like trans inclusive but they're the first ones to ban the girls to ban our phones ips they're the first ones if, i mean literally like you as a trans woman you can't put up a photo of yourself like you have to be in like a turtleneck you can't be showing any sort of body you certainly can't be showing titty and now it's so funny because Grinder is actually like they're letting the boys put up their fucking ass cracks on Grinder, you know, and like it's it's so it's so hypocritical yes. and it, it's not it like this shit that they allow gay men to get away with. I was gonna say, aren't shirtless selfies allowed on oh, Grinder? Like shirtless selfies, you know, like <laughs> I've actually seen like uh, buckles, like the on double Grindr. standards. Yeah, I've seen full on like crotch you know jock straps that are wet so you can see the full outline of the penis you know mm-hmm. in it and i'm like what is going on here i mean can you imagine a trans girl having a photo up and showing her genitalia on there like that no she they would be like you're banned for life we'll continue yeah. to follow you it's 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 crazy and the dating world for trans women was crazy and is crazy mm-hmm. it is so violent and abusive and malicious and 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 isolating it can make you have mental health issues it can drive you crazy but then also it's like well shit we're in 2022 so where do we meet where do we meet right real talk where do your trans sisters 
where do you turn to? Are you just trying to meet people in person? Is it like introductions, like people that you know, like are sort of vetted because they're friends? No, nobody ever. Like, I mean, or, or is it just like you're having to take your chances online? Yeah. I don't, I literally have never heard of a girlfriend ever have somebody introduce them to a guy. Mm-hmm. I think the, I think, you know, frankly, I'm just going I'm just gonna be really honest with you. Do like, please do. You know, like I'm often in spaces with other women on Zoom calls and spaces, and I'll look around and be like, I'm like, listen, I know we're all attractive women, but I'm one of the baddest bitches in this room. And how are you all not referring me to your single friends? <laughs> right? Like I'm amazing on paper. Yeah. I do phenomenal work. I am like nationally sought after. How are you not introducing me to your friends? And so yeah. if and, and if I'm not getting introduced to your friends and other women in my position aren't, right? The girl around the corner who just started her transition definitely isn't. Right. So it's it's funny because even with our sis sisters, they're not bringing the boys around. They're not sharing, um, they're not connecting. Mm-hmm. I don't think they see us as as um. I don't think they see us and see our futures connected to families and connected mm-hmm. to husbands and connected to partnerships, frankly. Um, well, and they also might just be worried about the competition because, you know, if you're, if you're uh, touting yourself as being so good in, in the bedroom, maybe they're worried about like, oh, they're just going to take all the good ones. Well, you need to be worried about just people uh, on I this think- planet. Yeah living their authentic lives and yes they may come in and teach that boy some tricks and he may not go back to a cisgendered woman well yeah oh absolutely absolutely i mean um i and there's so much we talk about with this but um when before i transitioned i was very afraid so i had obviously i've talked a lot about you know my gay years i was very afraid of um of, I was like, oh my God, well, this already, sh- this already sucks. <laughs> like if I transition, it's only gonna be worse, right? I'm going to be so lonely. Like, yeah, I'll probably be, I'll probably be happier, but like, you know, one of my life goals is I want, I want a family. Mm-hmm. I want, you know, I want a partner. I want a husband. I want traditions. I want the hallmark moments, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. So like, I was just thinking about all that. And I was like, okay, well, if I do this, it's going to be super lonely. And I really had decided to transition. And frankly, I also didn't see like people that had been out and like out and proud and like super duper gay and well-known for being gay transition. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't see that. I didn't see like other gay men out for 15 years who were transitioning. Mm-hmm. So I felt very lonely in that route too, of being like, well, I don't really feel like I have any mentors or like people to look to for this now. So this is like, this is kind of like no man's land. Like, I'm just going to go on this and figure it out. Yeah. Well, not really man's land, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So when I did it, I remember when I started getting on the dating apps, actually being shocked, quite frankly, being gagged by how many men who are cis men who identified as straight were attracted to me. Mm -hmm. And this is even early in my transition. This is when I was still kind of in my cookie crunch mode. You know, like, I remember just being like, oh my God, like there are so many men 
who are attracted to trans women. Mm-hmm. And I had also been on Grinder, right, for like 15 plus years off and on navigating that, using that to try to date, you know, using that, uh, finally giving up on dating, be like, fine, just gonna be hookups, whatever, right? And all of a sudden I'm back on Grinder, and there are like all of these men I have never seen before messaging me. And I'm like, oh my God, where are did you all come from? Like, I thought I knew everyone in Kansas City. And it was like all of the no profiles, like all of the blank pics, no information. Mm-hmm. And like hot men, like, right? you know, when I say like the men, I was like always kind of hoping to hook up with when I was gay. I'm like, <gasps> like they were just coming out of the woodwork, you know, like, and I was like, oh my God, you are giving me full on, you know, like Bradley Cooper fantasy, or you are giving me, you know, full on, you know, Wesley Snipes fantasy, (laughs) like giving me like the journey. And so early on, I remember I was like, okay, my whole years are done because I'm a woman now. And I want, and I, and like, there's just something different to me. There's always been different about being like, when I was gay and frankly, I think real talk, I think it was that I had lost, I never felt comfortable or I never felt like something wasn't right. Right. I was like, this doesn't, this isn't working. This doesn't feel I'm, I'm doing it and I'm going through the motions because I want to live, mm-hmm. but I was very unhappy for my last few years. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of people probably in Kansas city would attest to that. I think that I was just really over it. I was, mm-hmm. I was constantly in a place of like, I'm over this shit. Yeah. I'm over this community. I'm over these, this, these, these gays. I'm over these fags. I'm over this journey. I'm over dating. I'm over the bullshit. I'm over it. Um, and I was trying to figure out what to do. And then when I transitioned, I was just so happy. And it was like a whole new path had opened up for me. Mm-hmm. And it was this path that I had always wanted to be on, obviously. And um, I was kind of said to myself early on, it was like, you have a choice in how you want to navigate this. You can continue to behave the way you did when you were gay, or you can put different standards in place for yourself. And there was something different for me about the idea of just like casually hooking up when I'm now a woman, like presenting myself as a woman, where I was like, I don't want to just, I don't want to do that. Like I need them to show up in a different way. I need, I need, I need to believe in a different way in what this is going to become an outcome for. So very quickly, you know, while many wanted to hook up with me and have sex, you know, and I, I realized very quickly, I was like, even in this early years, like we're very fuckable, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, what do, like, what do I want? And so I would tell mm-hmm. the men, you know, I'd be like, I like, I'm looking to go on dates. Mm-hmm. And so I started to go on lots and lots and lots of dates in Kansas city before I left that were just great. I in all my years being gay, gay men don't take each other on dates really. So that's what I, I heard that it's no. just, it's just very hookup culture or they yes. go hang with friends, go out in groups, but yeah, that one-on-one date. You don't get a date. And then, and then maybe your date when you're gay, like, is that you had really bomb ass sex all night long. You were, you know, poppered up doing it all night long. You were fucking till the sun came up in the morning. And then you like go to get, grab Starbucks together. And you like both, <laughs> you know, you both offer to pay and you sort of split the bill. And then you go your separate ways. And then you sit around and you're like, I hope he's going to call. And then girl, he's not calling. He's off fucking the next guy. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's the journey. So oh, like, no wonder all of my gay friends are so unhappy. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. They yeah, hate, they do. Cold. They hate the dating scene. I'm the like, but you're right. You're not dating. The you're not dating. <laughs> you're not dating. And mm-hmm. if you tell a gay guy, 
I want to date, they're going to be like, cute, like, yeah, 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 whatever, right? Um, I mean, I will, I will say that was 99% of my journey. I did have a few guys who actually I went on dates with. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was trans and I, you know, came out, they were so open to going on these dates. And so I go on these dates and I would ask them questions and I'd be like, you know, like, tell me about yourself. And I'd really try to get to know them. And then I very quickly realized that the straight men were pulling all the cards to make it seem like they were going to be invested in me. And then the moment they got access to the thing they wanted, which was my body and frankly, my genitalia, they ghosted, but they ghost in a way that was super harmful and violent, right? They didn't just ghost. They blocked my number. They blocked my very existence on Facebook. They would block me on snap. They would delete every trace that they had ever been in contact with a trans woman from their very existence in life. And over time, I was like, oh, I realize now why so many of the girls do sex work. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to treat me like I'm a hoe, if you're going to- I might as well get fucking paid for it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, so that changed for me. So I actually actively started to choose to do sex work. And that was a conversation, frankly, I had to have with transformations was I went to leadership and I said, so listen, I'm going to be honest with y'all. I, this is what my journey is looking like. And this is what my path is looking like. And I also am helping run a youth organization. And I know how nasty and bad these gays can get. So what I don't want is for somebody to be like, you know, Marie's doing sex work now. Marie, I found, I saw an ad where she's doing sex work right? Because my boundaries are super fucking clear, right? They are very clear. And, and they have always been very clear about my relationships and my boundaries with young people with, you know, with not even young people with like early 20 something year olds. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what does, but you know, also that's the thing that has always followed gay men and trans women is that people want to try to find like some scandal and out us. And so I was very cautious of that. So I talked to my leadership um, and I said, you know, this is what's up. I just want you to know. And, you know, like, and they were like, we already knew that if we want to uplift and work with trans women of color and have them on leadership, that they're going to probably doing sex work. Mm-hmm. That's the reality. And she, and so they were like, you know, we know you, we love you. We trust you. You've shown us nothing, but, you know, professionalism and your entire reputation as like your 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 good girl basically like and they're like also like frankly what you do in your personal life does not affect like this this organization right like it's not it's not impacting that in any way and sex work is work and sex work is work that's it so the moment i opened up that self that that journey for myself it was so liberating mm-hmm. like and i recognize as i say that that the position I am in is very different than a lot of my sisters who don't have other consulting gigs coming in, who don't have other, you know, contracts coming in. Like that is coming out of place of survival for them. Mm -hmm. For me, it came out of a place of, oh shit, this is now like, this is is getting me all that detail work, right? This is going to pay for my electrolysis. It's going to pay for my laser. It's going to allow me to go get some really good wigs. It's going to allow me to get them custom installed. This is going to allow me the ability to travel. Like it opened up sort of those those liberties that I feel like other people in typical corporate jobs have where I was like, oh. And so I was able to really pour in and invest in myself. Um, And so 
um, when COVID happened, I uh, was actually leading a monthly training series at my, I had a loft in the crossroads um, and I was leading a monthly training series there and I was getting usually about 20 to 25 people attending it. Um, and I very quickly was like, oh my God, I'm not gonna be able to continue this because people aren't gonna be coming to people's houses anymore and like, you know, feeling comfortable. Yeah. So I got rid of my loft. I bought an old, well, not an older, like 2006 Toyota hybrid um, Highlander SUV, had the back converted where it was like, where like basically like a, like it was the seats were taken out and it was flattened and there was a cabinetry put on one side. And I got on the road with my dog and I started traveling and still having all my virtual consulting gigs because I was coming in. But mm -hmm. sex work allowed me to be like, no matter where I am in the country, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Right. Like, like there's always going to be people who will pay. And it liberated, it liberated me. It literally got me. That's the reason I got out of Kansas City, frankly, mm -hmm. is that it was those two combinations of being like COVID has now allowed me to completely get paid to do virtual stuff, mm -hmm. which I've been waiting for. And I have this whole other economy that I can tap into if I need to, to make money. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was traveling and I ended up, um, you know, coming to Seattle and, um, I had a friend who's like, I have a place that you can stay here. That's a really, you know, kind of a great situation with an Airbnb that I was paying very, you know, a really great deal on. Um, and then when I got here, I met my boyfriend off Grindr. And so we had to have conversations early on because I was like, I um, had to talk to him about, um, you know, who I was and share these things. So I was very transparent. I was like, you know, like, I've been doing sex work at times. Like this is part of who I've been. And this has not always been part of who I've been. And I probably won't always do it forever, but this is, you know, part of my journey right now. And, mm -hmm. you know, I will say this, like he went through a masterclass within the first two months. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, every single day was like motherfucking education for him, you know? And I was like, I am white people and anti-racism and white fragility and white supremacy, you know? And I was like, it's work and transport of color and HIV, you know, and poverty, you know, it's just like, oh my God, you know, it's going through all of these things. Um, but, uh, he really just continued to like, be like, I don't know so much and I want to learn and I love you and I care about you. So we just, um, contact, connected more and more and more. And he's a, he, uh, is a middle school band teacher and, um, works with young kids, you know, works with kids, which and teaches them and nurtures them, which I think is so awesome. And I love that. And, um, he has always been in relationships with trans women. So it's not like I'm his first. Um, in fact, he um, started um, dating trans women kind of early on when he started dating cis women. So um, I wasn't meeting him and being like, oh my God, like, like they're, they're also like, I never once with him, we've been dating now for, you know, over six months, like, I never once felt like when I met him that he was ashamed mm -hmm. to be seen with me out in Good. public Good. or that he was, you know, um, <clears throat> uncomfortable. And I think to be fair, like when I met him, I had just finished my third round of intensive surgery. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a whole journey of itself. Cause I went through that with my body and like with surgery, I got all my body work done. I had two mm -hmm. rounds of that. I got my facial feminization surgeries. 
So like, you know, my face and all of that is still healing and settling and recovering. So when he met me, I was just coming off my last surgery. My body was still kind of swollen and recovering. Mm -hmm. And I was like, listen, if you like me now, just wait, just give it a year, give it a year to the best that I'm going to look bomb. So, um, but he's great. He's been so good. But, you know, I think what I, what I feel for is that he is really a gem and so many of my sisters constantly are still navigating the same bullshit with the dating mm-hmm. scene, with the guys who are saying, I want to take you on a date or I, you know, I, oh, sure, I'll date a trans woman. And then the moment they get access to us, they cut us off. So, so many of my, my girlfriends as well are just to the point that I'm like, if basically like, if you don't approach me in a 1950s, old-fashioned, respectful way from the get-go, right? So if I'm on Grindr and I have beautiful photos up and there's nothing overtly sexual about my photos, and if you immediately are like, hey, want to hook up? You've already showed me yep. who you are, yep. right? If you appro- if, if I say on my profile, no, no, you know, no genital pics, no dick pics, you know, I'm looking to date, and you, the, your second message to me is sending your cock, You've already shown me who you are. So what I learned very quickly was that the the girls, we all have such a very defined standard for for entry that any single thing these men did that showed us he does not respect you or he is not interested in dating you and leading with that it immediately directed into the sex work conversation. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, if this is what it's going to be, baby, you don't even have to tell me, right? So then it's funny because then it would be like, okay, let's get you on Snap. Let's get you on Kick. Let's get you on Text. So, because we can't have that conversation on Grinders with a band. Let's get it there. And then once we get it there, right, then, you know, they're like, hey, beautiful, what's up? And you're like 500. And they're like, I'm so offended. I can't believe that. You're taking advantage of me. Oh my God. Settle down. No, you were the one acting like you just wanted to have sex. And guess what? You can totally just have sex. Oh, totally. It's just going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Yeah. (gasps) And and I actually learned over time kind of some things I would say that would really kind of help that conversation along and cut out the bullshit. As I said, you know, I was like, I, I said I was looking to date you showed by actions that there's some, that that's not what you're interested in. So it's clear you're not going to take me on a date, but I still deserve to go on dates. Mm-hmm. Or if they really push and they're like, um, you know, like, oh my God, like, I'm not interested. I'm like, you're not talking, frankly, frankly, you're not talking to a cis woman. You're talking to a trans woman, mm-hmm. a trans woman of color. So let me break this down to you really quick. Who's paying for my laser? Who's paying for my electrolysis? Who's paying for my FFS? Who's mm-hmm. paying for my BBL? Who's paying for me to go get my wigs? Who's paying for me to be able to go and have access and safety, you know, and pay for my Ubers and my cabs so I can travel? Because all of these things, right? My insurance isn't covering this shit, mm-hmm. right? So all of these things cost. My workplace, right? Even transformations, as amazing as it is, we don't have like health insurance that can do trans benefits right now, right? We're, we're building into that. Yeah. So like- all of these things are cost and the systems, the institutional systems and the structural systems, the same places they work that cover all of their visits and doctors and healthcare do not cover our stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yo, it's inequitable. So part of making it equitable is actually to pay. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> I'm with you. 
I do it. Absolutely. I've seen a few people get super offended at like, well, if you're going to treat me like a sex worker, then guess what? You're just going to pay for it. They're like, that wasn't what I got on here for. Well, you're acting differently. Your actions are showing differently. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, with, with doing sex work either. I think there's nothing. Um, I think it's extremely liberating and I think it's a path that unfortunately still at this point, most trans women of color, even, even the reality, even the trans girls of color who are loved and affirmed on by their parents, the moment they navigate their journey on their own, they're going to see that it's different. Cause here's the thing too. I actually think that white men and even men of color could consider dating white trans women are white adjacent trans women so i'm also aware that you know and i've had this conversation with my boyfriend i'm like the fact that i am like white adjacent the fact that like you can bring me around friends and they're not really sure what i am because when he met me he thought i was like half asian um but i was like you know like the fact that that like i'm not black right i don't have dark skin mm-hmm. so you still in all of your like like I fit as a possibility model in who you could see yourself with. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's much, it's way more different and harder. And I think complicated. And I think there's other amazing resiliency and survival skills that my um, darker sisters have, my black trans sisters have that I having a lot of privilege, even in how I navigate, do not have to think about. Um, but I do think for white trans women, there are a variety of men who will date them and find and find them dateable if they're passable enough. And I also think that they can't be activists. They have to be willing to kind of live their life and not really talk about their trans identity. And that's the other thing is like, I'm never not going to talk about being trans. Like yeah. it is, it, it is so essential in who I am. I love it. Right. I also like, am not really interested in passing. Like now that I'm in this place, I feel like I walk in places sometimes and like, well, I feel like often pe- I pass now. Like, I feel like for the most part, I'm walking in places I pass. I feel like somebody really starts to talk to me. They'll be like, oh, you're kind of, you kind of gay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to like throw my voice and, you know, I mean, for a client, I'd be like, hey, baby, how are you? You know, like we can do that. But mm-hmm. like in general, if you're my friend, I'm going to be myself with you. You know, I didn't have to change any of my mannerisms, my behavior, my voice, my transition. I wasn't interested in that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just interested in changing the physical. I was like, let's fine tune this shit. It's time for yeah. an upgrade. There you go. Upgrade. Yes. That's a great way to phrase it. <laughs> Marie, we have covered so much ground today. Oh my God. This like just let the conversation unwind because like, why not? You are seriously one of the more fascinating people that I know here in the area, although you're not really like here here in Casey anymore. You're, you know, you're in Seattle I'm right now. And a year. Yeah. So Um, but you're to me, like a Kansas city person, you're a fixture here in the activist community. Um, so I was really honored to have you on my show and I, uh, anyone out there who is curious about Marie's work, I am actually currently taking one of her classes, uh, and it's called white women and accountability. So you do a lot of work in the community and I want people to be able to know, like, how do they get in on the next cohort? How do they hire you with your work under social scope and all that stuff? So tell the people how they can find you. Yeah. So I think kind of at this point, it's a lot of it's just word of mouth. I mean, I don't even have a website right now. I've just, it's funny because like 
I'm in Seattle and I'm getting booked in Kansas City more than ever. I'm like, how does that happen? But, um, you know, uh, you can just reach out to me. So my email is for the number four, social, S-O-C-I-A-L, scope, S-C-O-P-E at gmail.com. Um, whenever someone reaches out about like trainings, you know, just kind of an example of things I offer um, is like helping build LGBT youth programs. I've helped build a variety of um, LGBT youth programs in the Kansas City area, like at Synergy. I've helped um, train all of Restart staff. I've done a whole racial equity training series with um, all of Restart staff. Um, I was part of the Kansas City Cultural Competency Collective and um, one of their consultants for a while. I've done like trainings on white fragility, on anti-racist practices. You know, my background has been doing harm reduction, transformative youth work, often focusing on LGBT youth and focusing on youth of color. And, you know, also focusing on, you know, trans women and trans people of color. Um, It's funny because these are such, like, these are such hot topics now. Everybody wants to book these things. But I've been living this life for 20 plus years. So like, for me, it's not new at all. And I think that's, that's probably one of the reasons why I I've keep getting recommended is because this is literally my life. This is who I've been for a long time. Um, and so while people are having a general awakening to these issues, um, you know, there's certain people like myself and, uh, and other queer trans people of color who have been talking about these issues for a long time. Um, so uh, for socialscope at gmail.com, you can also go to Transformations website, which is transformationskc.org. There's a leadership tab, so you can read more about me there. There's also a contact page. Um, I think our email there is transformationskc at gmail.com. Um, and Transformations, again, is the um, Midwest trans and um, gender non-conforming, gender expansive youth organization. Mm-hmm. Um, as I shared kind of earlier, we've explicitly um, uplifted uh, our work to center on trans young girls of color and trans non-binary survival mode, ages 12 to 24. Um, we're going to be starting a micro-grant program next year. So starting in winter of 2022, we'll be giving away, um, well, not giving away, but you know, people can apply. Application process will be very easy, like kind of low threshold to get into it. Um, $250 to $1,000 grants for young people to really use that money um, for housing needs, for getting their first stuff for apartments, for medical care, for surgery. Um, um, And so we will be explicitly centering, again, trans young girls of color and trans and non-binary kids in survival mode. Um, There's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Um, We're just solidifying our leadership new leadership model, which probably by the time this publishes, it might have a different leadership position. So mm-hmm. currently I'm the program director, but um, yeah. So, I mean, feel free to reach out. Um, and then for the white women in accountability series, it's the second time we've done it. I think both cohorts have had between 20 to 25 white women in them. Most have all, I think all of them have been small business owners or entrepreneurs or, you know, senior leadership at their nonprofits or their businesses or corporations, board members. Um, So I think the next cohort we will offer will be um, kind of like a 2.0 version. And then we'll offer the kind of entry level cohort again next fall. And that's co-facilitated with Mika Cole, who is phenomenal. She is phenomenal. She's so cool. So good. Like 
she's just a badass. Do you like it, by the way? Are you enjoying it? I love it? it. I really do love it. I I'm not saying that I feel like I'm further ahead than some people, but I can tell that there are some conversations and some topics that have come up that some people on the Zoom call have not really considered before. Mm -hmm. But that's okay because they they are the ones that need to be in the room. They're the ones that need to be having these conversations. Um, I'm just glad that there's, I, I hope that what we are experiencing right now is a shift in the conversation around things like equity yeah. and how we, how we show up, not just for ourselves, but for other people around us that don't have the kind of voice that we have, in, especially in certain rooms and certain circles. So I'm enjoying it. Yes, <laughs> very much awesome. so. I'm so glad. Well, my next step is to do some branding and website work. So I hope to have that done by the end of the year. Cause at this point I, I need to have like the site it's time. It's time. Yes. <laughs> yes. Get your website going, my dear. Well, again, I am so, so appreciative of you and your time. Thank you so much for being here and keep them coming with me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. Please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast and check the show notes for stuff we talked about during the episode. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, and TikTok, but visit my website if you want more information about me and my coaching services. You can join my safe for work or not safe for work email list, which I call the Dirty Bird. If you want less censored content about sex and relationships and want to know what I'm up to, please subscribe to that list. Send me an email, Kristen at Open the Doors Coaching, if you have a question, want to book a session, or want more information on my upcoming workshops. My theme song is original music by M. Kusa. Until next time.